is most important. What that is what makes the difference between for our eternities and uh, to keep that in mind and how wonderful a savior as that other song we just sang a few minutes ago. What a wonderful savior Jesus is to us and that he died for each one of us and it's effective to all of us who believe. This morning we'll be continuing um, our series actually coming pretty much to the close of it. I may have one more message in 1 Timothy just to review and, and bring everything together. But we're coming to the last uh, chapter of 1 Timothy today, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the, the title of my message this morning is Prescriptions for a Strong and Healthy Church. Prescriptions. It's a word we usually associate with medicine, something that you take uh, that's prescribed by the doctor to help you get well or recover from an injury. But that word prescription has an idea to it. Something that I didn't used to think of much because I didn't always think of the meanings of words so carefully as when I had the privilege or misfortune, however you want to look at it, of taking an advanced grammar class because my, my minor in college was, was English. And I had to take an advanced grammar. I dreaded it going into it. Was glad when I was, came out of it. Um, I, I just took English because it was one of my stronger subjects and I knew it, was, uh, it might help my resume for teaching. Uh, but really I was all about the history and uh, that was my major, that was my center. I didn't care to, to teach English. I get, it looks like I'm going to have to teach some English this fall, so now it's on my mind. But uh, Dr. Chapman was the name of the teacher. He wrote the curriculum for a Becca book, uh, which is, the, I think, the most used Christian school curriculum. We had boxes of a Becca books come in this week uh, for our school right back here. And I know that's the curriculum that we use over at the other Christian school where I teach in Glen Burnie. And uh, he wrote the curriculum, so he's a pretty smart guy. He's also very strict, very tough to pass his, you know, to get the good, the good grade anyway that you want in his class. And he made a major deal about that word prescription and what it means to prescribe something versus to describe it. Prescribe versus describe. He was very, it was kind of one of his pet topics was dictionaries and how dictionaries have changed to where most of your modern dictionaries, starting with uh, one of the most popular ones, the Merriam-Webster uh, Merriam Dictionary, starting with the third international version of that, going back to, and that, that's the, the dictionary that actually goes back to Noah Webster. A lot of dictionaries will have that name Webster. It's considered common domain. Anybody can take the name Webster. It doesn't mean it goes back to Noah Webster, but that one did, and it changed how it defined words to instead of telling you how you're supposed to use a word. For example, what's the difference between imply and infer? Uh, you know, which one are you supposed to use in the context? Instead of doing that, instead of prescribing how you're supposed to use a word, it would describe, and a lot of dictionaries are this way today, and it describes how people use the word. It says, well, some people use it this way, some people use it that way. And my teacher, he couldn't stand that idea. He said, no, it's supposed to be a prescription. It's supposed to prescribe how you're supposed to use that English word. And if you don't do that, you get to where we are today, where we look at the King James Version, and we think, what is this saying sometimes? 
because of some of the older words that are used because the meanings have changed because of how we use those words. And he didn't like that. You know, eventually your language changes so much you read old books and it's hard to read them because the dictionaries allowed it to happen. Uh, so that was one of the research projects we had to do was compare dictionaries and look at which dictionary is prescriptive and apparently the best one used to be Microsoft and Carta, now that's out of print, so I guess the best one now is the American Heritage Dictionary. Uh, it was interesting. But, so when I'm using that word prescription today, prescriptions for a strong and healthy church, we're talking about what God wrote in his word to tell us ahead of time how the church, what instructions we should follow to be a strong and healthy church. Really the whole book of 1 Timothy is that way. Every message I've taken, I've worded maybe a different way. There's always those three truths or four or so that we're looking at, that we're focusing on from God's word and what God wants us to do with that. And so today is the same kind of idea, looking at the last chapter in the book of 1 Timothy, which again, uh, Paul writes to a young man, Timothy, who's probably in his 30s, between 30 and 40 years old, some people, most uh, commentators believe, who is overseeing the establishment of the church at Ephesus and the management of that church and the leadership and the doctrines and the teachings and everything going on over there. He's representing Paul, the Apostle Paul to that church because the Apostle Paul can't be there at this present time. And so because of the fact that Paul couldn't be there, we now have, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of 1 Timothy. And the book of 1 Timothy is full as we've looked at instructions for the church. And so today is no exception as we draw to a close of the book. We're going to find three prescriptions in 1 Timothy 6 for how God wants us to become a strong and healthy church. The first one, the first prescription is for us to have a right relationship between masters and servants, servants and masters. If you will today, employee and employer. Why is that important? Well, last week we looked at how our church, how any local church is supposed to be a family of believers. How younger men in the church are supposed to look up to the older men in the church like they would look up to a father and speak respectively to them and look for advice from them and, and have that friendship that we're like family and that the older women are like mothers and that if you are an older man, you're supposed to look to the younger men and treat them like brothers, brothers in the Lord or those who are the same age, that we're brothers in Christ. But what happens when you have two men in the church, or potentially two ladies, or, or a man and a lady, who, one's the employer and one's the employee. Uh, he's not here today, so I can say a few extra things. Uh, I'm sure his wife will be listening. Uh, but uh, this summer, I worked for Dan Twig a little bit. So he was my master, he was my employer for a few days this, this summer. I appreciated doing a little bit of summer work as a teacher. I didn't get paid over the summer from that job, so I was only depending on the uh, part-time pay that I get from the church as the pastor, as well as a few side jobs and my wife doing some babysitting, and I appreciated all uh, the work I could get. 
and I've, I've appreciated the time I've had to put a little extra either into visiting or studying God's Word or getting a few things done. Uh, did a lot of painting and trying to do some trim work, carpentry work over at the Parsonage this week. I'm not very good at it, but I've learned a few things. And uh, I'll come back to that idea later. But uh, so, I, so I had Dan as an employer a little bit this summer. And of course, normally uh, during the school year, my employer is that school over in Glen Burnie and that principal and that pastor are my bosses. They both sign the contract. Ultimately, the pastor is, is the top boss over there. And I, in fact, I think I got more direct feedback and counsel from him than I did the administrator. I've got, I've got some from both on things to improve on, how to do a good job at work. And uh, so over there, I was under the yoke, as we're going to see in these first couple of verses. What is the relationship? When we come to church, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we look at the older people in our congregation and treat them like fathers and mothers because they're older than us. We want to have that kind of respect for them. But what about when you have an employer-employee relationship? Or, as was very common in the culture of this time, a slave and owner relationship in the church. How do you approach that? Because you're brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday, but then on Monday, what's the relationship going to be? So that's important. That was something that was very relevant to that time, master-slave relationship. Today, employer-employee relationships. Um, and I guess if you hire Dan Twig, then he's working for you, uh, if he's working at your house. And uh, I guess that makes you kind of the master in that, I don't know. But uh, let's look at this first, this first prescription here for right, establish a right relationship between masters and servants. Let's look at the first opening verses here. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved and partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort, and if any man teach otherwise and consent not, to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strives of words, whether whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. So this is speaking of establishing that right relationship. Notice in verse 1, servants are to be under the yoke, and to count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God be not blasphemed. In other words, what was very important, Paul is saying, is whether your master is a believer or not, you have to give them honor. Because something that would cause blasphemy, in other words, very serious disrespect to the name of Jesus Christ, is if a Christian who is taking the name of Jesus Christ, that's their faith, it's their relationship with Christ. They're a child of God a believer, a Christian, and they go to work, or they go to work for their uh, employer or their master, and they have a bad attitude, or they do a poor job, they have a poor ethics, 
they have a poor testimony, that causes reproach to the name of Christ. That they're, they're taking the name Christian, and they're doing a poor job, or they're having a poor attitude. They're not being respectful. And so that's what is most important here. More important to Paul than saying, masters, free your slaves. Notice this, isn't, this particular passage of Scripture doesn't talk to masters at all, directly. Uh, there's other passages in the Scriptures that do. But this passage is only talking to the servant. The word servant in the original language actually meant slave. So it was especially being um, focused on slaves. But as again I say today, a slave was a person who was bought and paid for by his master. He was considered the property of his master. He had no rights like we have today in employer-employee relationship. But at the same time, what happens today in an employer-employee relationship is the employer is paying for the work, the labor, that the employee is providing. And there's a certain honor that is due because that master, that employer, has purchased his labor. He's paid for that. It's different, obviously, than slavery today, and, and that's a good thing that slavery has gone away. Uh, but the slavery that was in Bible times, by the way, was most often to pay off a debt or it was because the servant signed off to become that slave so that he could have a way to support himself because he didn't have a land that he owned. He had to have a job. And so that's how they did it back then. Whereas today we have contracts and uh, and, 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 and jobs that work a little differently. And the Bible, by the way, never condones. Some people try to use the Bible to condone slavery. They did that in the South. And, the Amer and by the way, slavery was not unique to America. It was around the world, still is, even though it's illegal most places. There's still underground, illegal slavery that goes on and human trafficking which is terrible and the bible absolutely condemns it it refers to it as something called man stealing and so the slavery that we had in the united states back up until 1865 was man stealing because people were being stolen from another continent and sold trafficked just like human traffic today and it was legal but it wasn't right and it wasn't it wasn't justified by the bible Bible doesn't justify that. It justifies more of what we, the slavery that they had was, more, was closer, in fact, to our contract system today. It's just that the master also tended to provide the food and the clothing and the housing for his servants. Unlike today, where we are expected to pay enough for the employer, uh, for the employee, to provide his own housing and food and clothing. And so it's a little different today, but it's still principles that apply. There are still going to be these relationships. And what happens when you have them in the church? The point Paul is making here is that a Christian employee is not supposed to treat his Christian employer any different. He's not supposed to expect a free pass or expect privileges because, hey, I go to your church, so I expect that you're just going to kind of let some things slide with me, let me, uh, you know, not expect as much out of me as you might otherwise, and that, no, you're not supposed to take advantage that's the principle here. You're supposed to treat them with honor and be under the yoke. 
count the master worthy of all honor. Don't look at them any differently. On Sunday, you're equals before the Lord, but on Monday, there's employer-employer relationship with employee must reverent, must have honor uh, and, and count the master worthy of their honor. Positionally, this doesn't mean personally. Sometimes employers are not nice people. They could be mean. Uh, they could be harsh. Um, or expect more from you than you think is fair. Uh, as far as your work. And it, it's not justifying that at all here in the Bible. What it's saying is your position. You give respect to them for their position. The same thing's true to the President of the United States. And uh, when I was teaching uh, in Arkansas, back when Barack Obama first became President, I enforced respect for the President. He's a President. Because of his position, you have to respect him. When somebody referred to our current President last year in one of my classes as he looks like a peach. I said, nope, that is totally not appropriate. You are to give him the honor to his office, even though the person himself may not always conduct himself in an honorable way. The position is what you need to give honor to. He's the president. You need to respect him uh, for the position. Um, maybe not. Maybe you don't agree with him personally in some way, but you have to honor the position. And, uh, and I think... You know, the, the previous president usually got respect at press conferences. I, and I think that's the way it should be. All right, so uh, that's the type of respect we're to have for employers. Positionally respect and honor them. Verse 2, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them. In other words, once again, don't expect anything extra just because they're a believer. Don't expect the believing boss to give you, a, give you a pass again, give you extra privileges and advantages just because you go to the same church, because he's a believer, because you're brothers in Christ. But give him that same type of diligence and respect that you would any other boss. That's what verse 2 is saying. Let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved. In other words, look at you're a brother in Christ, I'm going to do even better to respect you. You're, you're, you go to my church, or you're a, belie you're a fellow believer, you're a fellow Christian, I'm going to try to make you even more successful by my work, by my efforts, because I love you in the Lord, I care about you, and I want to do my best for you. That's what Paul is saying in verse 2. That is the proper relationship of an employee and employer who are Christians, or especially of a Christian servant. Um, whether the employer is a Christian or not. This is our duty as servants. To, otherwise, we bring a bad reputation to the church. That was what the end of verse 1 was talking about. That the name of God and his teachings be not, that his doctrines be not blasphemed. That is what is even more important than the, the liberty and whether the master is a believer or unbeliever, whether he's kind and gentle and uh, generous or whether he's harsh and strict and expects a lot from you. You're supposed to do your part and make sure you're holding up the reputation for Christ as a believer. And verse 3, said, uh, notice the end of verse 2 says, partakers of the, these things teach and exhort. And verse 3 picks up, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud so in other words, sometime, uh, someone who is not 
reverencing, respecting his boss, or, following, or is not following any of the other instructions that are given to us in God's word, that person is doing so because they're thinking about themselves and they're elevating themselves above their duty to God's word and to follow the teachings that we find there. And that leads, and, so, and, and, and Paul says, this person knows nothing. He's ignorant. He's doing this because he thinks, well, this person should treat me better because he's a believer. And he's doting about questions and strifes of words which cometh, from which cometh envies and strife and railings and evil surmisings. Envies means you're looking at someone else and what they have. You own this business or you've got this position. You're my boss. I, I'm jealous of what you have versus what I have. That's the idea of envy or strife, which is arguing uh, or fighting. Railings is accusing someone, is speaking uh, ill of someone. Evil surmisings is thinking evil, meaning you, that person, ha that boss has a bad motive. Uh, that's what all these things, they're all the results of someone becoming proud and ignorantly ignoring these teachings in God's word to respect those who are in authority over us at work in particular. Of course, this verse 3 and 4 would apply to other teachings, any teaching that we get away from in the scripture. If we're not following it the way God intended us to it, that leads to all these arguments. False teachings from God's word, taking a passage of God's scripture and twisting it and thinking that we know better and we do not leads to arguments in the church. We don't want that. We don't want to be uh, debating uh, and arguing because somebody is bringing a false idea about what God's word says. So we have to be very careful in our approach to God's word. The second prescription for a strong and healthy church that we find in this passage is that we need to flee the love of money. We need to flee the entanglement of riches. In other words, thinking that money is what is most important. And if we are already following the first instruction, that helps. That helps. Because then we're not envying and we're not fighting about, and we're focused on doing what God says instead of what benefits us personally. Some people equate riches and that's God's blessing. Okay, uh, that's not necessarily always the case. We know that riches can be ill-gotten, that just because someone is well off financially doesn't mean it's because God is blessing them. They could be doing something that, that's not right to get it. And just because a church's offerings are good or a church attendance is good, doesn't always mean what's being taught in that church is what is right. So Paul says, be careful. Don't look at the material. Don't look at the financial as what is most important. Even when you're electing people to be deacons and trustees, what should come first is spiritual. Not this person is good at business. This person is good with money. This person can help our church grow. Um, that's, we are not to equate those things. Look at verse five perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness. In other words, if you materially gain financially or materially, that's godliness. That's 
Gain is godliness. No, gain is not godliness. But godliness is profitable to our lives in other way, in ways other than money. So supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So if somebody's teaching and arguing about God's word, and they're teaching things they should not teach, they're, they're contradicting what God's word says, from such turn away, from perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. In other words, they've robbed the truth. They've taken God's word and they've taken the truth out of it, and they're teaching something that's not what God intended. But godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words... Just because you have money doesn't mean you're godly. But if you're godly, whether you have the money or not, you have gain. You have profited. You have something that's worthwhile having. Godly character is worthwhile having, whether or not it results in you earning a higher income or having more materials, blessings, uh, that's not what's most important. Material and financial blessings, those are not what's most important. And so some, some churches today, they teach a health and prosperity doctrine that you want to have a good life, you want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, do these things. That's not what is most important. What's most important is becoming more like Jesus and more like God, becoming godly in our character. What is most important is that we be spiritually fed, that we be spiritually growing, that we have a right relationship with God, and as a result, a right relationship with each other. Often you'll hear an illustration called the triangle illustration, which is at one point at, down here is one person, at one point at the other end of the triangle is another person, and God is at the top. As both persons get closer to God, they also are getting closer to each other. And that's what should happen in our church and with each person, husbands and wives, family members. If we are both getting closer to God, we'll get closer to each other. We'll have right relationships with each other. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and if it is, it is, it is certain, we can carry nothing out. In other words, money, having physical prosperity, is not godliness, and we need to remember that because riches in this world can be a distraction. If we're getting too focused on our careers and money, that's not going to last. When we die, we don't get to take any of that with us. He who dies with the most toys does not win. Okay? It has no benefit to eternity. It has no um, influence on whether you're going to be in heaven or hell. And it doesn't benefit, doesn't make your life in heaven any better if we, get, if we accumulate more and more wealth in this world. But there is good things we can do with wealth. The Bible's going to tell us that a little, a little further on here. And that convicted me a little bit this week because, as I mentioned, I was doing some painting. So some of my extra time this week was spent painting, was trying to improve the parsonage over there and putting some trim up, putting a little... Uh, sliding door up and uh, trying to do these improvements and, and, th and then when I studied this I said you know I should have spent a little more time studying for my message instead of doing all these other things well I could can still do those other things to a certain extent but what is most important is becoming more like Christ godliness 
With contentment is great gain. And so contentment is being satisfied, being happy with where you're at. It's not wrong to improve yourself. It's not wrong to work hard at work and, and, and earn yourself a promotion. But that should come secondary to our relationship with God, to living right, to following God's will for our life. And verse 8, in having food and raiment, let us be content. In other words, everything else is extra. How nice of a house we live in, the car we drive, those are all extras. We have food, we have clothing. Everything else is extra. If we start to see life that way, we can start to see um, a balance come in and it helps us not to be as worried about the, all the different distractions that can come up in our lives whether for entertainment or just trying to improve our, our material status, our material situation, those things can distract us. Verse 9 says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. They're trapped by their riches. They're always worrying about their money and what's going to happen to it and how they're going to, what they're going to do with it. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts. They, they spend money on desires that they have to to fulfill that a poor person can't think about fulfilling because those are extra. Poor person doesn't have to worry about fulfilling those desires because he couldn't, he didn't, he wouldn't have the money to do that. So riches is a temptation which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, for the love of money. Notice that money is not evil itself. Money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. In other words, what do you love more, God or money? Money is a very common idol that we can have. Um, Got to be careful about loving money. Got to love God and not love money. Money is a tool that we can use for God and that God can use in our life. If we're good stewards of it, we use it well, which is mentioned at the end of this chapter which while some coveted under, so wanting more money, they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And many, many Christians have written books that they shouldn't have written and made a lot of money on that. Um, so there's a lot of good books out there. I'm not saying there's not good books. There's a lot of good books, and I'm glad for those books that are read. But what it's saying here is some people have gotten rich promoting themselves in a way that they should not have and left the faith because of it, whether it was by distraction or because by leaving the faith that allowed them to earn more money in some way. But 11, verse 11, But thou, O man of God, and here is the third prescription, the third prescription will, which we'll end with from God's word for how to have a healthy and strong church is to follow righteousness. So flee the love of money and follow righteousness. Follow godliness. Follow faith, love, patience, meekness. That's what verse 11 tells us. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, those things we looked at in verses 3 through 10, and follow these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Godliness is integrity toward God. Righteousness is integrity toward man. So having a right relationship with God is godliness. Having a right relationship with each other is righteousness. Faith. 
Faith has to do with God's word. Do we believe what God tells us in his word? Starting with about Jesus Christ dying on the cross to take the punishment of our sins. Love. And we could, we could preach a whole sermon about love. We love God. We love one another. Do we show that by how we interact with each other and what we do with our money? Patience. Jesus is the best example of patience. He endured the cross for us. He endured this life. He came, came to earth, born as a baby in that stable in Bethlehem, and then died on the cross and just lived a life that was not for himself. It was focused on teaching, leading others, and really denied himself. Meekness is power under control. And Jesus is the greatest example again of that. That he had the power to call 10,000 angels to rescue him and he didn't do that. He was meek. And then there's the idea of endurance. We are to have patience, endurance. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. That fight the good fight is an athletic term. Just like running a race or competing in, in a game. You have to have endurance. You have to have stamina. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. This is not talking about earning salvation, but living in light of what's going to count for eternity. What's going to last? Is what I'm doing with my time, is that going to last or when this life is over, is it just done? Is it gone? Whereunto thou art called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee a charge in the sight of God. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, listen to me, because Timothy, apparently, he needs to listen. He might have a natural weakness here, so he's giving him an extra charge here. Verse 13, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things. He makes alive everything. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as we look to Christ coming, you know, people are talking about eclipse today and other things that are coming in the sky. And I don't believe that those are necessarily signs that Jesus is going to return because of those things happening in the stars. Or, but Christ could come at any time. And we're not going to know exactly when that time is going to be. But we are looking forward to Christ returning for his church and rapturing his church. And what are we doing until then? Verse 15, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potent, the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is royal and he is all powerful. He has all authority. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Are we treating Jesus that way? Are we treating Jesus as our king, as our lord? Who, verse 16, who only hath immortality. He's the only one who had no beginning and no end. We all had a beginning, and then we have eternal life to look forward to, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen. God's invisible, but God exists. And Jesus, God made himself knowable through his word and through Jesus Christ as a man who came down to this earth. And we have the Gospels as a record of his life and teachings and sacrifice for us. Verse 16, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be the honor and power and everlasting amen. Charge them that are rich in this world. And here's where using your money well comes in. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Don't trust in your riches. In other words, trust in God. People who have money tend to not 
pray as often or, or be as dependent on God. Not everyone that has money is going to be that way. But we need to remember, God holds those who have money accountable for how we use it. You have the means to do a lot of good with money. What are you doing with yours? Verse 17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things. In other words, the money we have is because God allowed us to have those opportunities. And verse 18, That they do good, that be rich in good works, ready to distribute, ready to give, willing to communicate. Again, another term for giving for using your money to do good things. Verse 19, laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. In other words, God's going to reward you in heaven for the things you give up in this life in order to serve him and do good things with your life and with your time, with your money, with your resources, with your opportunities. That they may lay hold on eternal life. And that's not talking about earning our salvation with Jesus bought for us on the cross. It's talking about the rewards in heaven and living in light. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Lay up treasures not in earth, but in heaven, is what we're told in Luke 12, 31-33, and Luke 18. 18-25 uh, is an example of the rich young ruler who didn't want to give up his riches and so didn't follow Jesus. Verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. In other words, avoid anything that is not going to profit. Don't argue about things. Just excuse yourself from that conversation. Oppositions of science, falsely so-called. In other words, knowledge that's not true, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. So, this morning we looked at three prescriptions specifically from God's word. One is a for we need to establish right relationships between employees and employers. We need to have that good testimony for, for God. We need to maintain right relationships with money. Don't love it. Love God. And follow after righteousness. Follow after righteousness. Make God more important than money and use your money to serve Him and glorify Him. Are we following these descriptions, prescriptions, telling us how things should be? If we were to describe where we are as a church, where we're at as a family, where we're at as individuals, where do we line up with these things? How important is our money? How well do we treat our boss? Or how well... Do we follow righteousness? Let's close for prayer.